Welcome to the Axis Effect Podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. This is Sarah Miller with Access Entertainment and Marjorie DeHay, my co-host. Super excited to be here with Ethan Song, CEO and founder of Rare Circles. Hey, Ethan, welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. So, so funny. Marjorie and I always have these conversations about NFTs. Like recently, because, you know, we both have a mutual client that we talk about and the, all the NFT stuff we see and what's going on in the universe but there's so much we want to talk about with you on this NFT market and just the volatility and what's going on out there. But I first want to talk to you about Rare Circles because I love the fact that you guys are obviously a solution provider sports you have for creators, you have the minting. Tell us a little bit about what Rare Circles is doing within the NFT space because you're not an NF, you're, you're a Web 3.0 company, but I want to talk about NFTs, particularly just because I don't want people to think you guys are an NFT company. So I want to kind of clear that up in the beginning. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think there's a lot of, you know, noise and, you know, discussions in the space. We're a software company. I think would probably be the easiest way to describe that. Give you a bit of background story. I actually started in the e-commerce space about 10 years ago. You know, I I built software for e-commerce and I even launched my own brand in the e-commerce space, which was a brand called Frank and Oak. You know, it, it had a, a you know pretty good level of success. Grew to about 200 employees in the company, big e-commerce business, over 30 stores globally. And when I left the business, you know, I was kind of looking for the next opportunity and, and what I wanted to build. And how I went down the path of Web three is I was actually I was actually looking for a commerce enablement software. And, and what I mean by that is, how do we make shopping better and easier for users and you know, there was there was a premise of like social shopping for a long time in the mid like 2010s, and that never really kind of took up. And I was looking at building something in that space. And I, when I kind of started learning more about Web3 and, and the, the promise of what the blockchain can do, I realized that that paradigm shift was going to be significant. And, and that's where I kind of switched my focus from you know, the commerce space and, and move into the Web3 space. But, but why it's relevant is that what Rare Circles actually do is that we're effectively a community engagement product. And so when you say, are you an NFT company? I'm not really sure what defines an NFT company. But <laughs> That's we don't the big sell. question. That's like the big question was like the um, metaverse and Web3. There was so much unknown earlier in the year that nobody really define what any of it really was. Well, I think I think saying that something is an NFT company is kind of saying that something is an internet company or that something yeah. is a mobile company, right? It doesn't actually describe, it may describe some of the technologies that are being used, but definitely doesn't describe what problem they're solving or what kind of value they're trying to create for your customers. So just to kind of clarify things in our case, we're basically looking to use Web3 to help you supercharge your community, right? So like think about it this way, like if you have this community, they're engaged users, how do you take their loyalty and their retention through the roof? And we think that like Web3 can have an impact there. And if you think about like where we are today, obviously, start of a potential recession. Everyone knows that we're in a downturn and that you know inflation is a big problem. And if you think about it, if you're a brand in today's world, it's more expensive to acquire users because you know the, the customer acquisition channels are not as good as they used to be. People are tired of like all the newsletters are getting in their inbox. So like, you know, email open rates are not as good. And so having a more loyal, a more 
engage user base or client base is basically business critical. And so that is what we're after solving. And I think so we're you solving guys are it. Ex- yeah. So it's more of an experiential, the engagement. Okay. I'm going to pick on us. I mean, we're a PR firm. I'm going to pick on Axis just because sure. I'm not offended if Marjorie picks on the agency. I've known her for too long. So we do emails. We do so many emails because we run the largest mobile award show, Media Excellence Awards for Honors innovation leadership and all things mobile so i i'm literally literally people say, oh yeah i get your emails and the first thing i say is i am so sorry i am so sorry you just got like 20 30 emails in four months on submissions and then we do our newsletter the access insight once a month but like i'm constantly apologizing because i do feel what you just said people are getting so many emails there's it's hard to do a call to action we during covid we were just emails after emails where I'm so burnt out. I don't even read them anymore, which is bad. I just said that given we blow up the industry with ours once a year. But so you guys are really powering the engagement and kind of bypassing that whole traditional email to get them more engaged and to give them a better experience with whatever the brand or company is trying to reach them. And I'm thinking if that's correct. And are you guys pulling that power into the NFTs? Because I'm going to just say this publicly. And if I offend somebody, I don't care. It's my podcast, so I don't care. I, I think NFTs are a joke. I think it's it's a JPEG. It, I, I just got such a huge opinion on it. But I know NFTs are starting to come back a little bit. Not come back, but if I look at NFL, I look at Gucci. I'm going to pick on NFL. We're almost at Super Bowl. Marjorie loves Peyton Manning. If Marjorie bought an NFT... Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Yeah, right. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm a, I'm a Manny <laughs> fan. You're Tom Brady. But, the, but for buying the NFT, like for NFL, because I know what they're doing, means she would get access to where the players are moving to merge, um, discounts on tickets, you know, inside of what's going on. And But NFTs to me were just this whole wild, wild west. We're all out of COVID. Everybody's like stir crazy. We're free. You know, crypto, everything's just this one big perfect storm that just fell and crashed. Leadership's will rise out of it. But I feel NFTs are not going to come back. They're just going to start to be utilized as a utility for data the way they were meant to be a year and a half ago. So that was a long little rant there. Are you guys giving the power on engagement for NFTs that work the way they're meant to as a utility, not just because you want a JPEG of a board ape? Or are you actually going this a step further and using this rare circles to power Companies like our firm who are just blasting emails out to people when it comes to certain events and stuff or mixed or both. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, my, my thoughts on it are the thing is like, I don't know that there's such a thing as NFT. And, and what I mean by that is I think it's a visual realization of what people think of an NFT is, right? And so like, to me, NFT is not any different than the cloud or, you know, a database, right? Or TCP IP. And so to me, it's a, a, a technology layer. And, and to your point, I think that the, the hype cycles of NFTs or Board Ape or whatever that is, both the boom and the bust, has nothing to do with the technology, has everything to do with humans. And so whether they're bidding on that or whether they're bidding on crypto or on stocks or on coffee beans, it doesn't matter. It's human nature. And so hubris of like when things are going well, everyone wants to make money. And then all of a sudden, everyone starts losing money. So I think I like to differentiate the two things because if you just look at the noise, you're not really solving any issues. And so 
to come back to your question, like we're like the reason why I said we're a software company is because we we apply, you know, the concept of the blockchain into solving a specific issue, which we think will be engagement with your fan base in the future. And so from that perspective, let me ask you a question. Okay, let me let me let me like put this in a more philosophical way. What is the value of an NFT? Right? And so you could say the value is the code that's been put in, and that code can be copied and therefore it's worth like zero or it's worth like one cent. Let's say let's say it's worth one cent. At the height of the market, because all this is speculation, you could say it's not worth one cent, it's worth a hundred grand. And now that we're at the bottom of the market, it's kind of back to where it's being worth one cent. Well, we think that it's worth one cent regardless. And so it's what you do with it. And so when someone buys something, they're not really buying an NFT or when someone consumes an NFT, they're not buying an NFT, they're buying what that context of that business is providing to them in terms of value. And so like from my perspective, when you say, do you believe or do you not believe? I almost think that's not a conversation to be had because it's almost like saying, do you believe in music or do you not believe in music? Well, it depends what music I'm listening to. Or do you believe in emails or do you not believe in emails? Well, it depends what email I'm getting, right? So in the same way that like some people like to say that NFT is like a piece of paper, but what I do think is true is you know, a lot of people talk about NFTs like changing collectibles or changing art or changing like, you know, some of these industries. I do think that there's bubbles in those spaces because if it's something that someone didn't do before, I do think it's unlikely that we'll continue doing it at a high level once they can't make money anymore from it. You, you see where I'm going at? Like, like, if like you naturally, you're not a collector. Like if you never collected Pokemon or baseball cards, it's not because they're NFTs now that you're going to start collecting. And yeah. I think in the last two years, people did that because they could make money. But because that wasn't really their passion, now they don't do it anymore. And I don't think that those people are going to come back to it. But what I do think we're going to see is new application of the technology. Now, how big it's going to get, well, it's a, everyone can say what they think. And I could tell you what I think, but it almost doesn't matter because we don't know. Yeah, there's no there there. Now, let me ask a question because I always like to know people's secret sauce. So what are your processes? If I'm a brand new brand and I come to you and I say, hey, Ethan, I have a small community. I want to build it. How will Rare Circles help me do that? Yeah. So like, you know, we, we mostly work with, you know, brands that already have communities. And so that's why like, you know, we're not, we're not looking to compete from a social media perspective, you know, with Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. Right. So you effectively what we help you do is think of like our product as being the right medium between email and social media. Right. In, in a sense that you own your email list, but you don't own your social media. And so how do we provide you with something that's in between that the experience is more content driven, it's more interactive, you have more control, you also have access to more data, but it's a lot more exciting than email. So I would say typically what we would do is with the brands that we work and we work with some like very large brands, we effectively look at their user base, we work with them, we present them with some options and some types of experiences they could create to engage your users. And effectively, there's you know, it starts with a post or an email because those users are on some kind of platform and effectively we transfer some of them on our platform. And then we use that to engage them in the way the brand or, or a sports team or a merchant is looking to do. Okay, so, I mean, so if we go back to like, where is the value of the NFT? And I know everybody has a different opinion of it, but if the more data I have on the back end on you, on an NFT, which is mainly you're just doing your own avatar so you can move through the universe of where you're shopping, what you're looking at and what you're doing. Isn't the data or the value, the value of that NFT, whatever you want to call it, isn't that in the data? Because if I, if if you only have your name, your email company work for, nah, 
no offense, not really data, not really worth, you're not worth value. But if Marjorie, for example, I have her buying patterns, I have her job, I have, you know, if is she a sports person? Does she go to the gym? Is she fitness? Does she follow Tom Brady? Is she a football? Does she also go season tickets? I mean, I want that data. I want the big data. Right. That to me, wait, if I could buy that NFT, but with that NFT, I get all the data on that person. There's value if I'm a big brand, a big company looking to buy because list, because we used, remember we used way back in the days, and we used to always go to um, list houses. People just were trying to get their business started. They would buy lists just to spam people and that whole big deal. There's no value in that. There's value to spend the money if I need uh, half a million or a million users that will all want to go to Legoland that have kids that have a buying pattern. I want to target them. If I could deal with that and I could have your avatar or your NFT with your data, then that NFT is a value to sell to me. Look, I mean, I, I think going back to real problems to be solved, I definitely think that third-party data is is coming to, is highly challenged going forward, right? Like because of privacy laws, because of like policies, like like the Apple has implemented. You know, I think a lot of the targeting that marketers have used in the past was using like you know platforms like Facebook, and now you're realizing that hey, that's not going to be possible. Or you're not getting granularity, but you also realize that you never really owned it in any place because Facebook did. And so, I think a lot of you know, folks like like you guys are looking for, hey, how do I get access to first party data on my best users, which would help me to shape the kind of like benefits or the kind of experience I want to give them. And I do think that the blockchain can play a part of that. But I think what's what's new and what's different about it is that the user has to consent. And and I think that the that's where we're we're getting to, where the user by accepting that NFT or by buying that NFT is effectively consenting to that level of information being shared. Right. And so with the signature. And so I do think it's really interesting. Whereas I think in the past, you know, like, and I'm, I'm talking about like 10 years ago with social media, it was kind of like, oh, this service is free. I'll just use it. And I think a lot of people realize, hey, like, you know, these large companies are milking me for my money. They're basically using my data and selling my data. And so like, I may not mind sharing my data, but I want to know that I'm doing it. I also want to hopefully get something in return for it. And I think there is definitely a lot of premise that can come from Web3 based technology for that to happen. But I, I would say, and, and I think everyone in the Web3 space says that we're too early as a way to justify why the market is down, right? It's like, oh, it's not going well. Well, you know, don't worry about it. We're too early. I do think there's important challenges that I think the industry is facing. There's UI challenges, there's like reputational challenges, there's real hurdles that I think builders in the space have to solve. And I think builders of the space also have to. You know, it's kind of like you you result from things that you've done yourself, which is to chase easy money or go after like opportunities that you knew didn't make sense, but for whatever reason people were buying, and so you do that. So I think we have to be all responsible for our decisions. Now, my perception around all of that is that the challenges are real, but that doesn't mean that the opportunity is not real, right? And so I think those are the two things you have to compare. Yeah. So I love that because I am going to be the first one to admit I do have a crypto wallet my Coinbase. And I think I lost like eight, nine grand. I mean, when it, it was like a year and a half ago. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do it. See what's going on. I mean, we're a PR firm. We're all about tech. Of course, we're going to break something. We've got to try to break whatever we can on the internet. And I just let it right up. And I, clearly it tanked. But you know, we have a client who is very big on Bitcoin for humanitarian efforts, doing good for others when there's no centralized banking available. So my, my opinion on crypto it's a shit show. I don't think it's going to ever come back. But Bitcoin, digital currency, 
Yeah, I do have a strong opinion because I've seen the good it does. It's not just an investment to play with. So I, I do think, like you said, we all have different reasons for doing different things of why we do it. You know, I used to always joke around, like, you know, chase the green, not the dream and everything. But, I, you know, I just think everybody's different. But from a CEO standpoint, from a leadership standpoint of a brand, you need to obviously drive revenues and you've got to figure out how to keep your clients or your customers on board. The whole big deal with brands is to track, retain and maximize. I do like with revenues on the only way I even support an NFT is if there's a product involved. Because like, look at Gucci, look at some of these high-end fashion houses there. I could be up there, have a little avatar. I can have a little NFT and I could do what I want, but I also could do the physical and digital goods. So I do like that they have a more access to what's not out in the market. I only have access to certain fashion, certain lines, certain new lines coming out based on if I have that NFT. Okay, so I see that. I also see the problem with this on the NFT side is the perks, the benefits, the awards. That's that's just loyalty. It's just taking loyalty, which we've all done with our cards, spending to get points, loyalty programs to a whole new level, which is the whole NFTs. If you want to talk about loyalty, it's kind of like all esports is makes no money, markets crash. It's just gamers. We know where the money is on the gamers, not the esports. On the loyalty, it's just loyalty and points, but it's just now in the form of whatever graphic you want. And I feel like if these brands do the physical goods, and that's a brilliant way to drive revenues, if they don't have the loyalty and the incentives, it's going to fail miserably. And I saw a ring, a beautiful gold ring, beautiful. And I was like inquiring about it. Oh, Oh, no, no, the ring's like, fine. It comes with the NFT. Well, the NFT is 500 grand, but that ring's value is only like maybe three grand, not 500 grand. I mean, that's where I'm seeing the shift in lack of leadership of really, really knowing your market and what consumers want when they're playing on that level. It does too much of a discrepancy between that. Does that make sense? That's where I don't know if there's any there there or this is if, you know, this is an area that you guys are trying to figure out how to use the NFTs, how to keep your engagement by hitting the point of products and all the features and benefits and perks that makes it worth buying that NFT. That's where I'm seeing a lot of companies, Ethan, not offer the benefits, the perks, real tangible things that makes it worth to spend a few hundred dollars on one of their NFTs. Well, I mean, I think I think you're very focused on dollars amounts because you mentioned multiple yeah. times the cost of things. We don't really care about that. That's not really yeah. our focus. So, like the, the the thing is, like also, like we're not our focus is not to solve NFT problems. Our our focus is yeah. to solve customer problems, right? So, but but I think but I think to your point though, I I do agree with what you're saying. I think we're gonna see a trend where, you know, you're gonna see more and more like NFTs or digital goods tied to physical goods. You're gonna see more and more NFTs and digital goods tied to physical experiences. And in those instances the technology plays less as the thing that you buy and more so as just like paper, a way to achieve the things that you really want. And so I think that the role kind of changes. Now, I think there is a part that because people were making so much money and thinking there was this sort of like overall feeling that NFTs were going to be everywhere. I think that it's going to probably continue being more of a niche industry for a while, but so is like, you know, gaming, you know, you could consider that a niche industry. And so like a lot of the niche industries are very, very large. And so like, you know, e-commerce is not the majority of retail in the US, right? And yet, can we agree that e-commerce is a massive business? I, so I think the, the way I see it is, I think the technology needs to be applied in the right way. 
and uh, needs to be applied in the right use cases. And like the prices of NFTs is almost like that part of the industry will always exist, just like gambling and casinos will always exist. And there will be a portion of customers that are interested in that. Now, I do think that's unfortunate that that's what's kind of grabbing most of the headlines, which is like when prices are up, that's what we talk about. When prices are down, that's what we talk about. But to most users, it's not really what's important. Can you talk about somebody you think is just killing it in this market of brand building? And it can be one of your clients, but just somebody who's just knocked it out of the park and you just think like, wow, they did a good job and why you think they did such a good job. I mean, I, I can give you two examples. One that's not our client, one that's one of our client, I guess, <laughs> to spread out the love. But, you know, I think that like Nike is doing a really good job with their like dot swoosh program. And, and part of the reason why, and like a lot of people are like, look, they're, they're not even talking about NFTs or they're, they're, they're not even talking about Web3. And, and I think the reason why is because that is not what the value is. That is the technology that's enabling the real value. And so they're focused on community building. They're focused on like events. They're focused on like creators being able to engage, you know, with the Nike brand in a new way. And, and those are the things that they're talking about, right? And so I think they're approaching it the right way. They're also giving away the passes for free. And so they're not trying to make money from it. And But they're, they're, they see value more in the brand love and the brand loyalty and the experimentation around that. And so I think they're doing a really good job. I also, I think that they're doing a really good job by making it more consumer-friendly, just in terms of aesthetic, message, and experience. So that's one a good example. You know, I think that sports in general is a space where fandom has always been big. There's higher, you know, adoption for technology. I know you were talking about the NFL before. So I think it's a space where we're seeing good experimentation. One of our clients, actually, the Detroit Pistons, is about to launch basically an experience in the Web3 membership space that I think is going to be like really novel for sports teams because it's all about giving the customer a voice. And so I think that's really interesting because, you know, think about, you know, being a fan of a, a basketball team. If you're born in Detroit, you're basically a fan for life. And from that perspective, how right now you buy the shirt, you go to the stadium, but you're effectively not really like involved in the experience, right? So how as a team do I involve you more in the experience? I think that's super interesting if that can be solved. And so that's one example that we're involved in and that we're building. So I think those are two great examples of people are doing well. But what's interesting is you actually don't really hear about it as much because there isn't a price attached to it. And, and well, there isn't like not, a, it's not yeah. so much the prices. I think it's because we've been hit up so much by wanting people to want to come on the podcast to talk about NFTs. We, I mean, I've been against other, NF, of other NFTs, other podcasts. It's all about leadership. And I feel like they tied NFTs to crypto so much. So when the market tanks the NFTs, but I think it's because NFTs were being pushed to make a quick revenue because there's a lack of education understanding. So it was tied. Why would you spend $2 million on a JPEG that does nothing for you? And I think that's that, that mentality, that break in education of where we are is where it started defining when the market started falling. And I do agree. Nike, tremendous, tremendous job. I love everything they do about the brand. Their whole engagement, consumer engagement. I mean, they hit every tipping point on that. It is amazing. But, you know, I also know like the sports industry, we have a lot of sports background is their innovation. They're looking for always looking for innovation because the biggest point for them is that consumer engagement, keeping those fans forever, giving them more of that fan base interaction, fan base engagement. And was, this is weird because odd is because this is an issue I had to deal with years ago when, you know, we had used to have AG as a client, Sony and the music industry. How do we keep our clients engaged as a brand? Yeah. 
how do I keep that? I'm going to go to the music industry. So I got the masses of everybody in my demographics to push my brand to. It's it's all there. Like you, and I love that you said NFTs, all this technology. The big brands don't talk about it. It's just a tool, a digital tool to help power the engagement and that full immersive experience. And that's really what people need to focus on for brands. What they use to keep that going is really the brand's digital toolbox. And it does include all the stuff we talk about, NFTs and everything. But I think one of the challenges with the, with the blockchain industry sometimes is also that like, you know, there's a strong opinions around like, what is Web 2 and what is Web 3? Whereas like, they're just customers. They don't think like that, right? And so like, to me, it's like, well, first of all, people don't even know the definition, but like, to me, like things that are considered Web 1, Web 2.0 and Web 3 are all intermingled. And so they're all happening at the same time throughout the experience. And so I think it's about using the right toolbox basically to build. And that's why I, I like to compare Web 3 more to mobile as like where if you think about it, you know, I can order an Uber on my computer or I can over order on my phone. It just happens a lot more practical on my phone. But that's a very simple and small insight, but it's a massive results, right? Of that insight. So I think those are the things that I think are going to happen within the Web3 space in the next few years. But I do think that the noise does take away for sometimes from it. Like I'm not necessarily bothered by it, but I do think it's a distraction for both builders and consumers that want to get into the space. Well, they can't see beyond the fray on this one because they're so consumed with the commercial what was shoved in their face down their throat in the beginning what they were seeing but like you know I, I mean I'm huge on mobile I mean I have to be it's what our agency specializes in and when mobile years ago was just a standalone but it's no longer a standalone it is your one of three or four platforms multi-screen you could sling it here and there you could share send communicate there's utility apps entertainment apps the UI, there is so much we could do on mobile right now. I do see mobile as just another, how it's just evolved as another toolbox. If I'm a sports team or, you know, an AG, a music venue, whatever, I'm not going to be emailing you. I'm going to be going out to the app, hitting you up on your cell phone because I want to know how close you are, what you're buying, what you're listening, what you're downloading. And when you walk into my doors, you basically, I own that experience. And I know that experience is only on your mobile. So I think the focus, I love that Web3 is, it is and should be if it's not geared around the mobile technology and innovation, not anything else, because that's where we all are. Unfortunately, you know, 90% of our days is on our mobile phones. Yeah. And, and, but I think, I think in order to get to where we're today, I think it's like now that we're here, I think we tend to forget that, you know, the first iPhone didn't do all those things. And that like, even before the first iPhone, there was Blackberries and there was like, you know, Nokia's and there was like, you know, different general magic also in the nineties. And so like I, everything is an evolution of the past thing. But ultimately going back to what I said before is I'm more interested in the consumer revolution and finding the right technology applied to it than the other way around. And I think that you asked me about leadership. I think that's how I am able to stay focused is that like, if you look at the market, you can't build products based on what the market is doing. But what you can do is build product based on what you think will make the customer experience better. And, and that will likely lead you to, you know, hopefully success at some point. But that provides a real problem to solve and a focus areas for people to have. So I think that that's the important piece about that. Now, like, you know, are there promoters in the space? Yeah, for sure. And like, I think, I think people have to just realize that it's not one industry. It's, it's a technology that's being applied in many different ways. 
Yeah. I'm glad you kind of brought it back to leadership because you've been obviously a very successful serial entrepreneur. You've raised a lot of money. You've done a lot of interesting things. So for people out there who want to be entrepreneurs, especially younger people who maybe don't understand how venture capital work or don't understand the how to like really hone in on a good idea and build it, what are some suggestions? What have helped you during your career? Well, I mean, I think I think probably like the the entrepreneur tip that I'm sure everyone says is just like never give up. I think that's the thing that's helped me. But but the other thing I would say is one of the saying I think a lot of people have that not a lot of people actually think about, but uh, I don't know who said that, but is that people overestimate what they can do in one year, but they underestimate what they can do in five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of it is like, if you're an entrepreneur and you're working on a project, let's say it's Web3, and rather than think of it as like, okay, in 2022 or 2023, this is what I want to do. Think of it like, what is the arc of my story within Web3 for the next five years? It allows you to think much differently about decisions that you're making, even your relationship with money and your relationship with success. So I think that is something I've learned actually as I got older, because I was the same, very impatient. I just want to raise money. I just want to make more sales. You know, early in my career, I realized that things do take time. And when things are good, they're never as good as they seem to be. And when things are bad, they're also never as bad as they seem to be. And so like the best way to be is actually to be more even throughout the entire time and make the right decisions based on that. So I would say that's a stretch the timeline and it'd be more like even keeled. I would say those are the two <laughs> things uh, I've learned. The, the last thing I would say for other entrepreneurs is that I do think you have to be have some rounded skill, whether in yourself or in your founding team to be successful. I think, you know, because of the level of competition we see in today's world, like just being good at sales, just being good at product is not enough. You do need to be good at a few different things. And often one person can't be that, you know, you, you do need to, have a team or have a leadership team that can do that. So understanding that like, if you go into a space that's expensive, you know, to run, you will have to raise money. So if you don't know how to raise money, you're not going to succeed, even if you build the best product. And so, or if you go into consumer and once again, you're great at design, but you don't know how to acquire customers, well, that's going to be a problem, right? So understanding that with those things and then making sure that you surround yourself with the right co-founders, the right kind of founding team, I think is another piece of advice that I have for most folks. Excellent. Yeah, I do think it's hard. And I think people don't understand how hard it is to raise money and how it's so cyclical, too. It's like there's a lot of money going in, not a lot of money going in. But I love the stretch the timeline, because your idea might not be the market might not be there for the idea. But if you wait that two to three years, you know, as you said earlier, oh, I'm too early for the market. No, you just have to like, keep building and let the market catch up to you. I think it's I mean, like the one not scalable though, Max, if you're not going to be scalable, you don't have that trajectory to really understand that. Look at VR, look at AI, look at all this stuff. A lot of companies are like, oh, there's 20 billion. But after the shakeout, it's the ones that really hunkered down and understood if I build this, how is it scalable? What's it going to do long-term affecting mobile content, everything? And what is my trajectory? And I think that that visionary to where if you understand that on longevity and a company you guys are talking about, that's what really makes a difference of an effective leader and just a startup. Yeah. I mean, think about it this way, right? Like what's the stat on how long it takes for a company to go public to exit nowadays? It's more than 10 years, right? So I can't remember the exact number, but I know it's more than 10 years. So throughout 10 years, you're going to go through multiple cycles. Like if you're a builder in the crypto space, you're probably going to go through three cycles. So so you better get used to it and like know how to manage it for yourself and for your team. Otherwise, you're going to burn out for sure before you get to that final outcome. But I think it's the same in other spaces too. And like, you know, I think unfortunately, the way that humans are and the markets are is that they go from extreme to extreme. They go from like extremely good to extremely bad. 
I'll give you an example. Like I've been around in the tech space for long enough to see like AI be really big to die down to like really be big again today. And all, all everyone's talking about is ChatGPT and Valley and, and everything, how AI is going to change the world and how open AI is now worth like over 30 billion. Is it worth that much? I don't know. Right. But all I can say is that I remember two, three years ago where people were talking about the fact that there was no real application for AI and therefore you couldn't scale an AI company anymore. And I was also there when there was a lot of hype in the previous AI cycle. All I can say is that AI will change the world in the long term. But what happens in the short term, it's everyone's guess. And I think it's the same thing in Web3, but I also think it's the same thing with, you know, where social media is going and, and like where like, you know, e-commerce is going is that it's clear that these things are going to stay. What they become, I think time will tell. I think that's like such a bigger conversation because we do with so many startups. We've seen so many fail. We've seen so many bring in the VCs. I mean, we had a situation, we had a really good mobile client way back when, big deal with House of Blues at the time. And we were on a call on a Monday morning, like me and like three of my staff, employees. And we were just like, there's nobody come on like, okay, well, I'm going to go call, you know, Duncan, Sirizad, you know, some of my other staff, you know, Jen, go call this person. We just sat there. The VCs came and fired everybody over the weekend. Didn't tell us. And we just sat there on a 20 minute hold. We had no company. We had no client. They're all fired. And we just see so many mistakes we make as human nature. And I think a lot of these like startups and what I totally mad respect to you because you do see the long-term, the scalability, you do see you got to stick it out. I also think a lot of people have great ideas. They're bringing in the money. They can't get off life support. And then they start driving their business in, by their egos. And we all have great ideas, but then I think a big killer of startups and of leadership and then somebody's really true leader is making decisions and running a business by their ego. Because I always say you cannot run a company on its ego. If I am a good leader, I'm going to know I make mistakes. I'm going to bring in people around me. I'm going to trust because they know what they're doing that I don't know. And that is a good sign that you're a leader because you know you need to bring in the right people to do what you can't do. And then you can't run a company by your ego alone. And I think a lot of these startups that might have been really great big hits because it's not yes it's the market it's the product the technology but nine of ten times it's ego and lack of leadership i mean i'm just going to say it we have seen way too many at this point to where we could equivocally stand 99 percent behind that comment and i do think to your margie's point you've got to see the long game here and a lot of people don't. They don't want to keep putting the money in or they don't know how to raise money or they get burnt out on it. There's so many variables that destroy a company that um, I think that's why we keep seeing the cycles that we see in technology. You know, you rise, you fall, but then there's people who are just, they are always going to be standing strong. And when the whole market crashes, they're the ones that emerge as leaders. So they didn't run it by their ego. They stuck it out. They persevered. They hunkered down and they were smart about where the technology is going. I think there's so many variables that we take for granted that's obvious in running a business. But for most people, they you got to kind of see beyond the fray to understand if you want to leave, you got to know how to leave and accept some of these issues. It's a controlled thing. You don't want to accept that you don't know everything. You don't want to trust people. There's so many reasons. I think most CEOs or a lot of them they're their own worst enemies when it comes to running. And I'm talking about startups to big global yeah. companies. I mean, CEOs get fired all the time by boards. There's variables, but you're, on your, you're your own worst enemy halfway through the game. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of the reason why, like, there's always this saying where, like, you know, the best companies are built into bear in bear market. And I think it's purely based on the fact when there isn't money and you survive anyways, then you know you're, you're demonstrating the grit and the leadership required to win. So I, I think that's definitely true. But that said, I would say that I think everything you said is true. You know, when times are good, everyone kind of their ego gets huge. They're raising money; it's easy, and like everyone's like the media is writing about them, so they think everything's going well. And often when that, you know, either that, that bubble blows or it doesn't scale, you know, I think they, they hit some points, but it's, it's easier said than done. Yeah. You know, having been there, having have lots of friends building, like it's the market does have an impact on you, what your board is telling you, what other VCs, you know, seeing other like founders, like raise a lot of money is a distraction. So I think you need to have a lot of discipline and a lot of founders also first time founders. So if you're like 21 years old and someone just gave you 25 million bucks, like it's not a, a like it's not an easy thing to manage. I kind of like, I'm always an optimistic. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing what I do. I always say, you know what? It's like, those are all like hard learnings. And fortunately, you know, the entrepreneurial cycles and the American, you know, capitalist machine makes it in the end, it all works out. Yeah. So what are some hard lessons that you may have learned that you have some advice to give people on? I think a lot of startup founders or, or even entrepreneurs do things to Sarah's even point. I think they do it for like vanity. I think that they do it because like TechCrunch writes about it or because that, you know, their board is like, oh, that's so good. And then like, you know, deep inside it may not be the right thing, but you can be, keep on doing those. I think the challenge there is that once all you do are things because you think they make you look good, I think those are things that are not going to work out well. You know, obviously there's a trend right now where especially during COVID where every startup founders started being very active on Twitter. Well, I think understanding that's not your job, you know, like, like that's not what it leads success. At least like everyone's building personal brands, but that doesn't make a company successful to have a personal brand. And so I think really understanding what's driving value is key. Not letting like ego and vanity run the business or run, run your life, I think is essential. Thinking in terms of probability, that's like the other way that I've started thinking, which is I, I do think when you're a founder, because you're the CEO, because people invest money in you, you feel like you need to have the answer on everything, right? Like, like if, you're, if you're in a board meeting and like, you know, you're being challenged by a board member who happens to be like at a top tier VC, you, you almost feel like you have to be on a defensive and explain why this is like that and how like it's not a problem. And I think just being okay with not knowing and being okay with like not knowing for sure or saying, hey, I think it's likely it's going to work, but I'm not, I don't know for sure. And that's okay because that's the reality. And like anyone that tells me the opposite, they, they don't know. And, and like the investor doesn't know either. So I think thinking and planning in terms of probability, what is the likelihood of something happening? And there's always a likelihood that it does not happen, right? There's always an infinite, even if it's really, really small, there's always a likelihood it doesn't happen. And so understanding that that is the case, that there is no certainty and your decisions removes a lot of pressure. And, and, and so I think those are all challenges. Other tips I have, I, I think the other thing is, you know, people come out and especially in the in the startup world, because a lot of people feel like they have to raise money, they raise money and then they have to sell like a, a billion dollar dream. And often what you realize is that the most successful companies started by doing something small and, and eventually getting to that billion dollar dream. And so just like don't lose sight, right, of the, the small problem that you're solving, even though it may not seem like it's worth a billion dollars or it seems like it's sexy enough to like, you know, get the headlines. I don't I don't think it matters. Look, seed and Series A startups that are grabbing a lot of headlines, like it, you can see that a lot of them don't make it. It's almost like having too much hype in early days is actually bad, right? Because you have too much money, there's too much attention on you. You're not really focused on what's really valuable. And so just focusing on the work to be done is an essential part of being successful. And the other thing is, I've learned to almost let go of the outcome to a certain extent, right? So like, I can't control the macroeconomic environment. 
I can't control right the bear bull cycle or whatever happens with NFT market. I can only control what I can control. So focusing on what you think is the right thing to do within the circumstances that you're being dealt with, I think is the only thing you can do. And then the outcome will be the outcome. So I, th- I think that makes sense. I mean, I don't think it's just for startups. It's for CEOs. I mean, anybody can make an easy decision. That doesn't make you a CEO. Making the hard decisions, having the hard conversations, knowing that what decisions you may may not make that are yours or from your board is going to affect an employee or somebody or a layoff. And it is really making sure you don't walk away leaving humans as collateral damage for your own ego. I mean, I think there's a big difference. A CEO is not anything you could do. It's, it's, an, it's not a bot title. It's an earned title. It's not an right. entitlement. It's an earned. You have to earn time over time to fight for that title. You have to fail publicly. And it's not about failing. It's how you pick yourself back up and you know, and how you handle it. That's not just a startup. That is also big CEOs of big companies because they get so used to having a team around them. They don't, they're babysitting. They're not really leading anymore. And to your point on social, oh my God, so many people took to social and Twitter and everything. And I'm still seeing people say, why are you posting 20 times a day and the little memes oh stay strong leadership one step at a time i get it we all understand that but the more social the higher up the food chain in a big corporate company you are the more social i see from somebody like you the more i question your leadership skills why are you on linkedin and twitter and ig posting five or six times a day doing all this stuff when you should be running a company and taking that advice and I, I do think, but, but social is a whole other podcast of how that's skewed and kind of ruined lives and made us rethink our value, our worth, and what's important in life. But I, I just think there's, like, if you look at a spectrum with all these colors, there's at least 95% is why you fail, whether you're a startup founder or whether you're walking to a huge global corporation as a CEO, you didn't build it, you didn't roll up your sleeves to get to that point. You just walked in as a CEO. You still got to abide by the same parameters as everybody else. And I do think it gets hard. I do think you're right. I think every point is a reason why people fail, no matter where they are in their career. It's like, you got to keep hounding that message in because we're seeing more of it. And what bothered me after COVID was I was seeing more really big CEOs kind of, step down from that leadership role like a startup and it's just i just think i don't know if it's social more innovation the smarter the tech is the demo we get as humans we like so much of smart technology i always joke my with our cell phones my smartphone just gets my get dumber because i think i can memorize two phone numbers now because i'm constantly relying on my phone but i feel like being a leader takes active work every day and i feel like through COVID in the past two years, people have kind of started missing the mark of what a real leader is. I mean, I definitely think social is a distraction. You know, I think that like, because people are working from home now, they're doing it more before when you're in office and boardroom, you're less likely to do it. But I think it's a distraction because like we all know people think about what they post. And so like, if you're posting three, four times a day, like that's probably two hours of your time. Like it's not, it's not like just like two minutes, right? Because you want to be clever. You want to be smart. But I, but I think the problem, going back to what you said before, is I do think people, I think people do it because it feeds their ego. Oh, 100%. Because it's like, it gives you immediate feedback. People comment, they repost. And, you know, so right away you, you feel relevant in the space and if you give your opinion on like a current affairs. I think, I think that's why people do it. 
And that's honestly easier to do than to actually solve a real business problem in the downturn in your business. And so well, they want to feel relevant. Good. They want to fill up their scene doing all this great memes that they're seen and heard. I'm a leader of this company. Therefore, you can see how great I'm posting, which is weird because I made a comment to Marjorie the other night. Like I haven't even been on LinkedIn that much. I got so sick of seeing one, the ad, the ads are just killing me on IG. We have the things that add Two, it's like, I am so tired of seeing bullshit and people post their personal drama or seeing big CEOs of big companies post all these bullshit memes constantly when they should be running you know, global company. I mean, I just, I have stopped. I mean, I'm not posting as much and I'm, I've stopped going on all my social. I used to be a social fanatic because being in PR, I was constantly looking, posting, sharing, but now like I miss like the true meaning of what social media was about. So I've just kind of stopped going, unless I see some stupid, I'm going to send to a friend or something, you know, we all do that. But I think you're good where you talk about LinkedIn because it used to be a business. It used to be a yeah. business platform. You, hey, I'm meeting with somebody. Who do I know in common? Because that's a connection. And now I feel like it's just become kind of like a Facebook and, and LinkedIn let itself become that. It let because it started feeding all these ads and all these other things. So it didn't keep to its true purpose. I think had it kept to its true purpose, it'd be far more meaningful today. I was a LinkedIn fan for a long time and I loved it. And then when I first started seeing people with their kids on vacation or a personal post, that's when I knew like five years ago, LinkedIn was never going to be what it was meant to be. So look, I mean, I think I think as a, just to finalize, I mean, the discussion on founders or CEOs, and I think you know, I'm a I'm a big like Warren Buffett fan because he's like in his 90s and he's still doing his thing, and so I think part of it is like, can you have longevity in anything you do, right? Like, you know, anyone can be hot for a year, but can you build longevity in your career? Or can you build longevity as a CEO? It's not easy, you know, because well, because the first thing it means that you wouldn't have gotten fired and you would have survived, you know, multiple mm-hmm. downturns and that you would have not run out of money. And so I think longevity should be more rewarded and should be more recognized as a, as a sign of like success versus, you know, I think, I think we like to embrace kind of like the overnight success. And like, those are the things that catch the headlines, but the reality is we all know that it takes time. And so actually rewarding and embracing longevity, I think should be a new concept. I think you're wonderful to use Warren Buffett because I was just reading an article about it and it said 95% of his wealth was accrued after the age of 60. So people, he's been successful his whole life, but the majority was, again, longevity, which people don't really know about him. So I think it's it's a long game. I mean, one thing that he always talks about, right? Because people always wonder, how did he get this rich, right? That's always this question. How is it even possible? And I think part of the thing, I mean, obviously this speaks to investors, but I think it's very relevant for builders as well, is like a lot of people can be successful through one cycle, but are you able to be successful through multiple cycles? Like those, those like Forbes or, or Fortune, like uh, Midas list, like, can you be on it? like 20 years in a row. And I think someone like Warren, that's what he's been able to do, you know, going back to the idea of longevity. But yeah, I, I think he's, it's, it's incredible because like, sometimes I look at things that he's done like 20 years ago and that feels like a long time, but I realized that he was already like 70 <laughs> when he did it, which is crazy, you know, like, which is crazy. But I think it's like you have the longevity, you know, the people like Warren that, you know, they have that longevity. They just keep moving, keep in the right direction. And then I think you have the people who had the success if they could learn from their lessons, be humble, swallow their pride and their bullshit and their ego, fix the mistakes, come back again for their comeback, have a good five to 10 years. Like you said, they can't control everything. 
Maybe that didn't work out. I think when they rebuild themselves to come back as a better CEO, a better person. So I always define startups as startups and then seasoned startups. I have clients that they've done two or three startups. They are really good right now because they're seasoned. They learn from their mistakes. They are constantly evolving and learning, taking everything good and applying it to be better on the next one. And I, I, I think you have like two types of leadership. The longevity ones you guys are talking about and the ones that can humbly swallow the pride. Yeah, I made mistakes, but I'm going to do it better. I'm going to be better because that's the right way to do it. So I, I kind of look at different forms of leadership and how people are succeeding and why they're succeeding. And then we just have people who had a really great run, took time off, went back again. And then a year or two, they're like out on their butts again. I just think there's so many layers of a conversation of what makes a leader, but I think we've kind of hit on the very, very basics of the platform of what it really takes a lot of people just don't understand or they just don't want to put the time in to that skill set right i know oh my yeah, God. that makes sense it was so good having you on the show ethan we are like literally talking about i don't even know what we're talking about anymore we went around the world nfts <laughs> engagement all the web3 stuff where can people find you guys yeah, I mean, they can, they can follow us on Twitter at RedCircles. Uh, they can also find me at Mr. Ethan Song on Twitter. Otherwise, you know, RedCircles.com is where we're at. And I also host my own podcast uh, called Rare Access. So if you want to learn more about the space, feel free to listen there. Awesome. This is so good having you on our show. We love the background, the Zoom screensaver background. This is what I love about Zoom, to guys' point, is that what we thought we knew way back when we're so reliant on Zoom. We all don't need to be in offices anymore, but doesn't mean we should be at home. I wasn't on my social posting. Hey, I'm on a podcast with Ethan and Marjorie, but I, I do love how the technology has evolved and made it easier for people like you to lead the companies and technology you're building, Ethan. I mean, honestly, you've done a tremendous job. It's really good to talk to people like you and have you on our show. That was good. Appreciate that. Perfect. So thank you so much for coming on, Marjorie. Always good being on podcast with you, Ethan. We wish you the best of luck. Keep us posted on any advancements. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Axis Effect podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Axis Effect podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit theaxiseffect.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.